Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we preview March Mammal Madness and we find out that there's some exciting stories about animals. Whether it be gaining an edge on your opponents by being able to see in infrared, through to singing and having conversations, there's a lot we can learn by studying mice and mammals. Plus, trying to get the balance between carnivores right is quite difficult, and we look at the study of balancing conservation when it comes to predator groups. All this week and more on Animal Special of Lagrange Point. Now it's March, which means it's time for the premier sporting event of the social year. And that is, of course, March Mammal Madness 2019, organised by Professor Katie Hind, as well as fellow co-coordinators Chris Anderson and Joshua Drew, along with a team of other artists and scientists from across the world. We've been putting together this competition now for a few years, and it's an exciting place where you get to see how your favourite mammals would compete against each other in a four-division with 16 competitors per division knockout single elimination tournament in the same vein as actual Mart Madness. Now, this competition has no animals actually being heard, but it is a great way for people to learn about new and different types of creatures from across the globe. And, well, given that mammals don't tend to play nice with each other, and there are a lot of them out there, the tournament has expanded from year to year to include different divisions. We had, of course, one year with mythical mammals. And this year, we have no difference. The organisers have decided to include a variety of creatures, including tag teams, mutual combinations of creatures that work together, as well as creatures that are around waterfalls in water or aquatic environments. And of course, another exciting category like the category division, where it's a group of things that aren't cats, but tend to chomp and chow down on cats. There's also the jump jump division, full of creatures that like to hop and leap. Now, all of these divisions have different types of animals, ranks from 1 to 16 in their seeding. And then you pick your tournament at the start and then you watch how they journey through. And you score based on whether or not you manage to guess successfully. But the real winners along the way is all the cool scientific facts and things you learn about all these variety of creatures. And that's why it's a tool used by hundreds of educators across the world to teach their classrooms. The official tournament kicks off on March 11 with the wildcard round. But after that, it goes through from March 13 each week, two days a week, through to April 3rd in the championship bout. Now, if you're interested, check out the hashtag on Twitter, 2019MMM, or go to mammalsuck.blogspot.com for all the information that you need to do. If you follow 2019MMM Let's Go on Facebook or Twitter, it's a condensed form of all of the information. So check it out, get involved, there's still time. We'll be recapping some of the progress for the different divisions this week and picking our winners and seeing how they traverse through. Will it be the time for glory for the stoat? Potentially. Or will it be the interesting tag team combination of the fire coral and algae, or the bonnie and bat and the pitcher plant? Who knows how it will pan out, but you can follow along and join in the fun and learn a lot as you go. So check it out on Twitter, or Facebook, or your preferred social media, and score along with the team. So this tournament is run by the indomitable Dr. Katie Hind from Arizona State University and a wide team of volunteers and scientists from across the world. When it 
comes to getting an edge on competitors, whether it be in the fight for supremacy in Mammal March Madness, or even just the general struggle to survive for both predators and prey, getting an extra sense is always useful. But what about augmenting a sense? We have lots of senses that we're aware of, and one of the most useful ones for both humans as well as other creatures is, of course, our sense of sight. But what if we could see more than what we're currently able to? At the moment, we can only really see invisible light, but the light spectrum is much, much wider than that. Much in the same way that the sound spectrum is wider than we can perceive. Really, really high-pitched noises that might annoy dogs or other small children can't be heard by older people or sounds outside of those ultrasound or infrasound range may not be able to be perceived by humans. But the same thing exists for light. There's the whole range of the visible spectrum of light that we can see. That's all the colours that you may be familiar with. But outside of that, there are whole bunches of light that we can't actually perceive. If we could, well, TV remotes would be much more entertaining for an example, because they use infrared light. But researchers from the University of Science and Technology in China have been investigating ways to improve and enhance vision using a clever nanoparticle which they've tested and published results of in the February journal edition 7. Now the whole principle behind this is trying to expand the way in which animals can see and they've used mice as mice models are actually a pretty reasonable one for testing and they developed a na nanoparticle and the purpose of this nanoparticle is to change the way in which our eyes work. And they injected this specifically designed nanoparticle into the photoreceptor, the cones at the back of the retina for the mouse. So what happens now is when light enters the eye, it goes through the eye and hits the retina, the rods and the cones, which are all of the things used by our photoreceptor system to absorb photons and turn them into signals that our brain can process. Basically, we absorb light of different types, process them, and then send out electrical jolts. These go to our brain, and our brain interprets these as vision. Now, normally, infrared wavelengths are too long to be able to be absorbed by photoreceptors. And in other words, we can't see them because the photoreceptors in our eyes can't process those signals. So the scientists, led by senior author Chan Zhu of the University of Science and Technology in China, working together with researchers like Zhang Han from the University of Massachusetts Medical School, developed a new nanotech-based approach. So they developed a nanoparticle that anchors really, really tightly to the photoreceptor cells in the eye. And they act as what we call in the electrical engineering industry transducers, light transducers. They absorb in light, certain frequency, but in this case specifically infrared, and they emit out an electrical pulse signal. So in this case, when infrared light hits the retina, the nanoparticles are actually able to capture those longer infrared wavelengths of light and emit shorter wavelengths that are within the visible range, which means they can get processed by the existing photoreceptors in your eyes and get turned into something that you can then recognize. Another way to think about it is they've added some nanoparticles which transforms the infrared light into visible spectrum through a conversion process. And in their experiment, the nanoparticles absorbed infrared light around the 980 nanometers in wavelength. So in the experiment, they used nanoparticles which absorbed infrared light around the 980 nanometers in wavelength and converted it into light which peaked at around 535 nanometers which, for want of better words, made 
the infrared light appear in the mice's eyes as the colour green, which is pretty impressive. Now, the researchers tested these nanoparticles in the mice, which, like humans, actually can't see, obviously, infrared naturally. And the mice that received the injection showed unconscious physical signs that they were detecting infrared light, which includes things such as their pupils constricting, while mice injected with only a buffer placebo solution didn't respond at all to the stimuli from infrared light. But to really test whether or not the mice could actively see infrared, they set up a series of maze tasks to show the mice which could see infrared light and which ones could not. So what they found is that the mice actually performed pretty well with the ones with the big dose with infrared in these specially designed infrared maze. Now, in some cases, there were side effects, um, mostly around having cloudy corneas. This disappeared usually within less than a week, which means it might have been caused not so much by the nanoparticles themselves, but more the fact that they had to be injected into the back of the eye, which could cause some issues, especially if you're putting in a placebo in there, which actually doesn't do anything. Most tests found typically to no damage to the retinous structure following these subrectal injections, which is good news. So it showed that the rods and cones were fine to have these nanoparticles bind to them, and that these were actually activated by infrared light. So in principle now, this could work for human eyes, not only for generating supervision and giving you an extra sensory skill, but more for therapeutic solutions, and for example, for someone with color blindness. If you know that someone has a difficulty detecting the color red, in red color vision. Well, you could actually design some nanoparticles that specifically absorb that and pulse it out with something that they can interpret, which would enable people to see and understand red colors a bit better. Now, of course, you have to do some testing with obviously FDA approved compounds, which is the longer term test for such a system to actually before you even think about using it for therapeutic human trials. But for animals and for humans, it is a new way forward, showing that you don't need to invent a new sense to get an edge. Sometimes you just need to augment it. Now, as humans expand and change their environment around them, this can have devastating impact for the species and animals that thrive in those ecosystems. Whether it be creatures that eat on fauna that we deforest or chop up, maybe the creatures are driven out because we destroyed their habitats or homes, or mostly because there's increased competition for food and resources. All of these things can lead to species dropping off, which is pretty much the story in most of these cases. We tend to see species getting less and less population in an area, and also we can see things go extinct in the worst case. But new research out of Michigan State University, published in the journal Ecological Applications, looks at a couple of cases where that's not quite the full picture. Because it's easy to think of a species getting displaced by human activity, getting pushed out of the way. But that may be only considering one species, not the entire ecosystem context. And the truth is, in some cases, some species drop off, disappear, back away, and others thrive in human mixed areas. This is research led by a multidisciplinary team of MSU scientists, including lead author Matthew Farr, a quantitative ecologist, as well as Elsie Zipkin, Kay Holcamp, Gary Roloff, and David Green. Now, what they were looking at is a particular area in Kenya's Masai Mara National Reserve where you can, through that, observe the different ways in which humans can 
eat into or cut into populations of animals. Now, the Kenyan Reserve is divided into two real sections, split in half almost by the Mara River. On the western side is an area known as the Mara Triangle. And inside the Mara Triangle, there's pretty strict enforcement policies, which means that humans don't really disturb the creatures living there. They're trying to keep that area relatively pristine, which for a national park and animal reserve is what you aim for. Now, a subsection of the eastern side is known as the Talic region. But the problem with the Talic region is there's very frequent human incursions into the area, which could be anything from throngs of tourists to cattle herders. And you can see by pulling up Google Earth, the multiple trails carved into the landscape in the Talic region where cattle commute as they walk around this region, grazing on the grasslands. So the question is, what does this do for all these species living in both the Myra Triangle and the Talic region? Geographically, not that far apart. But in terms of their response to human interaction, human presence, it's very interesting. Now, the team looked at not just one particular species, but a wide mix of different carnivorous predators, included banded mongooses, bat-eared foxes, black-backed jackals, cheetahs, slender mongooses, leopards, castles, servals, and side-strapped jackals. Of course, along with the ever-present lion and hyena. So that's a wide range of carnivores, a lot of them appearing in Mammal March Madness. And it's a big, diverse community that needs to be analysed. And typically, analysing data for a full community is not normally done. As Elsie Zipkin points out, many carnivorous species are rare and difficult to detect, but we wanted to use all the information we had to get a full picture of the effects of human disturbance. So how did they do it? Well, they needed records from all observations, which then they linked in a massive model from all the different studies on those different populations of animals. The shared information across the carnivore community helped to build up and fill in the blanks left by some of the rarer species. And what they found based on the model that they assembled built upon empirical evidence is that the area with passive enforcement of wildlife regulations, which is the Talic region, areas where people can still get in and out, in that region you can see pretty severe adverse effects on many of the carnivores. But in particular, bat-eared foxes, leopards, lions and servals all suffered dramatically when compared to the area which is preserved and safe inside the Mara Triangle. But the model showed that the carnivores didn't react uniformly to the blanket conservation policy. In fact, hyenas and black-backed jackals thrived in the Talic region in face of that high human disturbance. Which is actually pretty interesting to think about because we know that creatures like the jackal and the hyena adapt pretty well as scavengers to humans in the environment. In fact, for example, for a hyena, having some cattle come and graze in your territory may not be a bad thing. There's a chance for an extra snack there. The way in which this model helps land conservation managers gives them an idea to enhance their conservation practices. Instead of trying to manage for one particular species in isolation, you really need to look at the whole carnivore community and different species will respond differently to types of enforcement it just goes to show just how tricky balancing an ecosystem is and that's if you're even trying to actively manage it and species and carnivores will some rise to the top and others will disappear and that's always going to happen in the survival of the fittest 
but it's something we need to keep an eye on so that we're in our preservation of these areas we don't accidentally encourage one species to die off and end up with an abundance of another. This is some great work out of Michigan State University based on Kenya's Masai Mara National Reserve. Universal characteristics of human behavior is the ability to converse with each other, maybe through words or maybe through other meanings. We have the idea and the ability to actually interact with other people in our species, and sometimes even outside our species. You might be talking to your dog or your cat, or sometimes even inanimate objects. But nevertheless, we're able to have this conversational type ability, but not all mammals have the same thing. And to be sure, if you look at something like a bird, well, of course, birds do have this call and response interactive type conversation, as do crickets. This is a very complicated interaction that you can see where they have this exchange between two parties. But there isn't really a good model for that in the mammalian group. You can try and use marmosets as the leading model for the back and forth type conversation approach. But marmoset models aren't quite the same as humans. They are a primate, but their conversational speeds are much slower than human speech because the human response is actually incredibly quick compared to the marmoset. Uh, quick like birds and crickets. And there aren't too many other creatures out there that do that. Common model, especially for neuroscience, is obviously the mice model. But mice tend to communicate in ultrasound, but they don't have the same type of conversational experience that others do. That is until some researchers from... NYU School of Medicine, undertook a pretty exciting study of a new type of species all the way from the cloud forests of Costa Rica, called the Alston Singing Mouse. Now, the Alston Singing Mouse is actually really, really exciting, because they can produce songs with nearly 100 audible notes. They sing these songs with response to each other. They challenge competitors by singing in turns, alternating like talking humans do in a really quick way, not I sing my piece, you sing your piece as a response, but like conversationally where people interrupt and come in over the top of each other, like you get in a normal, typical conversation. This is a really big difference to the typical standard laboratory mouse because that's not the type of behavior that a laboratory mouse has, which is why lead researchers like Michael Long, Akarov Banerjee, Daniel Okoba Jr. and Andrew Matheson have been investigating at NYU and they published their results in the journal Science, as the cover story let. Now, why they're looking particularly at finding a good model to study is to actually try and get a feel for what is going on inside the brain when people generate conversation. Because understanding how the mechanics of this works so quickly is more complicated than it seems. In fact, the way in which these mice's brains work is actually using an entirely different part of the brain than you would first expect. It's relying on separate individual circuits inside the motor cortex. So how they managed to determine this is by studying the mouse brain in detail as it was generating these sounds. And it seems that the actual evolution of the mice's brain has developed its ability to separate sound production and sound control. So they end up with two different control circuits, but they're also very tightly controlled. So there's one area of the brain that tells the muscles inside the mouse to create notes. And there's a separate one in the motor cortex that enables fast starts and stops. And that fast start and stop is what's essential for actually having a conversation. 
Now, these songs that the mice were singing were also pretty interesting because these songs involve a series of notes that sort of evolve predictably as the song goes on. But the mice were able to bend and break the songs to converse with each other because the song pattern, and if you look at actually in the readings through electromography on the brain, you could see the electrical signals generated in, as muscle contractions uh, to produce each of these song notes. And you could monitor and study and get a precise reading of the song and then see how when the two mice were having a conversation, the song itself would stretch and bend and snap into place and shrink or contract depending on the type of conversation they were having. So through this, they also remember to find this hotspot located at the front of the motor cortex, the orofacial motor cortex, OMC. And it was actually responsible for regulating the song timing. So to actually check and see how it was working, they actually interfered with some of these mice's cortical regions to actually see if they could change how they produced the song. For example, they cooled that region, the OMC region of the brain, during songs to see how it actually impacted the generation of the songs. They used a method called focal cooling. It's a safe way to slow the actual pace of vocalization without changing the pitch, tone, or duration of each individual note, which is a pretty amazing thing to think about. Just by slowing down, by cooling that region of the brain, you end up with this slowing down of the vocalization, making it become really slow without actually changing any of the key characteristics like pitch or tone or duration of individual notes. It basically involves the sequencer effectively slowing down and pushing out all of these signals. Now this is pretty exciting to think about for a singing mouse, but it's more important to think about in the case of human speech, because understanding how human speech circuits work inside our brains and how they're broken up and controlled in different places helps develop our understanding of obviously human speech, but also for people who are suffering from speech disorders. Because now if they're suffering a particular region of the brain or a particular issue in one area or another, you can help understand, diagnose and develop better treatments. That's why this is a project of NYU's Neuroscience Institute and Department of Ontological at NYU School of Medicine. Because it's really a focus to find a good mammalian model for speech that mimics better human models because without that we're sort of flying in the dark if you think about just the act of speech alone as one of the lead researchers michael long points out we need to understand how our brains generate verbal replies instantly using nearly a hundred muscles if we're to design new treatments for the many americans for whom this process is often failed often because of disease autism or traumatic events like a stroke and that's really true the complications of human speech you don't really tend to stop and think about. But what your body is doing to actually produce sound in a conversation and respond quickly to changes from a partner you're conversing with, that is an amazingly complicated piece of muscle memory as well as neurological processing. And to understand exactly how that works will help us treat people for whom that has failed. So some great work out of NYU School of Medicine. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we previewed the competitors in Marshmallow Madness and we found out some exciting ways we can study mice to learn about seeing in infrared and how we converse with conversation, plus balancing predators in the savannah. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.